as the Lord provides. I'm excited about this message. I heard it last night, and it is a it's a very very timely message, an important message for each one of us. Give David Mickelson a warm welcome. morning everybody my dad keeps on getting skinnier and skinnier it's awesome i should take a page out of his book at least i'm now taller than him after his accident so that's good (laughs) i always start out at a low point and then i can just build from there speaking of low points a husband and wife who work for the circus go to an adoption agency looking to adopt a child but the social workers there raise doubts about their suitability So the couple produces photos of their 50-foot motorhome, which is clean and well-maintained and equipped with a beautiful nursery. The social workers are satisfied by this, but then raise concerns about the kind of education a child would receive in the couple's care. The husband puts their mind at ease, saying, We've arranged for a full-time tutor who will teach the child all the usual subjects, along with French, Mandarin, and computer skills. Next, though, the social workers express concern about a child being raised in a circus environment. This time, the wife explains... Our nanny is a certified expert in pediatric care, welfare, and diet. The social workers are finally satisfied and ask the couple, what age child are you looking to adopt? The husband says, it doesn't really matter as long as the kid fits in the canon. (laughs) Boom, yes. You know, we've been uh, studying the Gospels. My dad's been doing a series, and if I'm not mistaken, we're just wrapping up Luke and then moving on to John. And uh, uh, my dad's been doing so well with that, I didn't want to step on his toes, so I'm going to try to parallel what he's doing with a complimentary sermon on First John, which is written by the same apostle who wrote John, and they have many of the same themes. A major theme of First John is love, as you might know if you've read that book. In fact, even though this letter only has five short chapters, The word love shows up here more than any other book. 23 times in the KJV, it varies based on your translation. So on average, once every 50 words, love. And fittingly, the book that comes closest is the Gospel of John, which is written by the same man. And it has 19 mentions of the word love, which is as much as Matthew and Luke combined. So, you know, John had a profound revelation of the love that Jesus holds for himself and for all of us. And that impacted everything he did. And we need to take a page out of his book because if you're aware of how much God loves you, it will impact everything in your life in a positive way. You know, every creature has a purpose. A cat was made to seek out and destroy every little small thing that moves. They can't help it. Even when their bellies are full, they will do it. A dog is made to be on the alert like a good watchman. All the birds in my neighborhood are made to relieve themselves on my car. They're really good at fulfilling their purpose. And that's not a lie. A human being is made to bask in the warmth of God's love and to love him back. That's how we glorify him. That's what we were made for. Not a bad purpose, huh? John's revelation of that love was a source of his effectiveness as one of the rocks that Jesus used to build his church. A second purpose of this letter is to give assurance to all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ that they do indeed possess eternal life. Many have put their faith in Jesus Christ and they doubt If they're going to heaven, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you know your faith is in Jesus Christ, you need to believe you have eternal life because he said so. And if he said it, we need to believe it. Do you know it's actually sin not to believe something he tells you? More on that in a bit. But it's vital if we're going to understand this letter before we dig in 
to know the context of what was going on in John's time. This, he was in Ephesus, and uh, scholars believe that this book is uh, one of the last books of the New Testament to be written based on the testimony of uh, some early church fathers who lived one or two generations after John, the 120s, 130s, 140s. And uh, I think we have a picture. This is not a photograph. And uh, I like these guys. Irenaeus and Clement. I don't know what's going on with Clement's forehead, but I can't really talk, can I? So they both testified that uh, 1 John is written uh, around 85 to 95 AD. And um, right at this time, there was a new heresy that was forming called Gnosticism. And John is writing his letter against the Gnostics. Can we get that? Can we get rid of those guys? So I want to tell you about the Gnostics so we understand why John is writing this letter and what he's talking about. I'm going to try to be brief. They claimed that they were Christians, yet they also claimed we're not saved by grace, but by having secret knowledge. That's why they were called Gnostics, because the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And so their central belief was that matter is evil and spirit is good. And that means our bodies, which are matter, are inherently evil and our spirits are inherently good. So if that's true, then God, who is spirit, could not ever really become a man and have human flesh, could he? Because human flesh is evil. So they said Jesus was just a man, he was not God. And they also said that since matter is evil, you might as well lean into it and just indulge the flesh as much as you want. Hey, your body is irredeemably corrupt, and so you can hardly make it worse, so just do whatever you feel like. They were famous for sexual immorality because they believed the spirit, which is good, remains unaffected by whatever you do. So big surprise, this heresy became popular with some people. (laughs) Free love, man. I can do whatever I want and still go to heaven. Party on. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? (laughs) So when we read this letter, we'll see John asserting as an eyewitness that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, really did come as a man incarnate in the flesh. John also focuses on what happens when people claim to be believers, but like the Gnostics, are willfully indulging in an ongoing lifestyle of sin. So if anybody is thinking, well, David, that's all well and good, but why should we in the year 2023 care about some ancient heresy which eventually uh, died out? Fair question. Yes, these people sound like a bunch of hippies who just wanted an excuse to mess around. If you're a hippie, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. You know, these guys would fit right in at Woodstock or Burning Man. Here's the deal. I'm not asking you to care about Gnosticism. I barely care about it myself. But we should want to know why the authors of the New Testament wrote what they did. Because, listen, everything in First John is still relevant to our lives today. And John tells us his purpose in writing this letter in chapter 5, verse 13. I believe we have that verse. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God should know they have eternal life. I think I just said something like that a minute ago. Wow, that worked out well. And they should continue to believe. Notice the emphasis on continue to believe. Why is that there? Is it possible to believe and then stop believing? Can someone believe and then fall away? Now, I'm not going to get into predestination and once saved, always saved, because that's not John's emphasis here. 
But one thing we can say for sure, he tells us to believe and keep on believing. Personally, I don't think he would have written and keep on believing if it wasn't possible to believe and then stop believing. You know, like the rocky soil in the parable of the four kinds of soil, the seed of the gospel actually produced a little plant in that type of soil. It began to grow. It was alive, but it dies because it has no roots. So his point here is crystal clear. John is saying, God loves you. And if you put your faith in him, you definitely have eternal life. On the other hand, the one who rejects him in their heart, no matter how often they claim to be a believer, definitely does not possess eternal life. And I know this is heavy stuff. The room gets real quiet when people say stuff like that. Uh, because John's not just talking about wolves and sheep, sheep's clothing who know that they're wolves. There are wolves in sheep's clothing who know that they're wolves, and they come with a specific purpose to interrupt the church and cause trouble. These people, these Gnostics, and anyone else who's like this, really think they're believers, even though they're living rebellious lives. And John is saying, if they die in that state, they will be in for an extremely unpleasant uh, reality check. You remember what Jesus said? Many will say, Lord, Lord, what about all these things I did for you? And the Lord will say to them, away from me, evildoer, I never knew you. Many will experience that, and it won't be pleasant. I know there's an idea out there. You're not supposed to preach on damnation. Just on grace. A nice, happy topic. How many times have we heard someone, oh, that preacher, that preacher is just a hellfire and damnation preacher. Hellfire and brimstone. They should preach more on grace and love. It is true that you can overdo it. As an evangelist, I've seen lots of different kinds of evangelism. And the worst one, I went out once with a guy. I didn't know he was going to do it. I never went with him again. He doesn't go to our church. But it was all... You're going to go to hell if you don't do this. And it, no one got saved. A lot of people got mad. It just doesn't work. You can't scare people into heaven. And that's why Paul said, uh, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Here at New Song, we preach on love and grace all the time. But hell is a real concept, isn't it? It's in the Bible, and we shouldn't ignore it. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in Scripture combined. He came specifically to raid hell and populate heaven. He overcame hell on the cross to snatch all of us out of the flames. So it's not out of place to sometimes talk about hell, since it's in the Bible. You know, if the only message the American church hears from the pulpit is, everybody's awesome, we're all going to heaven, there's many paths to God, and if you have faith, God will make you rich. Well, that may be a recipe for a mega church, because you're telling people what they want to hear. But it's ultimately a disservice. And I know all of you, you wouldn't be here at this church if you didn't want to hear preachers that go wherever the Bible goes. And so we're going to do that today. And so let's dive in. And the first verse is 1 John 1, 6. And he writes, talking about the Gnostics, remember, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh which the Gnostics did. And if you, and or, if you choose to live in sexual immorality as an ongoing lifestyle, unrepentant lifestyle, that person is actually self-deceived and walking in darkness. Again, 1 John 2, 4. This is another shot across the heretic's bow. The one who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. 
Don't you love the Bible when it just straight up says whatever and doesn't care? (laughs) I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Look, if the truth is not in someone, they're not saved. I can't make it any clearer than that. Jesus is truth. If you don't have truth, you don't have Jesus. In fact, it also says somewhere else, the Spirit is truth. It's the third member of the Trinity. So, if someone is living willfully, knowingly, in rebellion, while claiming to be a Christian, don't shoot me, I'm just a messenger. These are John's words. That person is a liar. And, by the way, I'm not trying to look at anybody here, because I... I'm not thinking, I'm seriously, I'm just preaching from 1 John. I read it over and over again. I'm just trying to preach from 1 John. I wasn't thinking about any of you. So, please don't misunderstand if I accidentally look at you and I say something. Okay. Here's the deal. The worst lie is a lie to God. Ananias and Sapphira. The second most damaging, though, is when we lie to ourselves. I'm going to step aside here and argue with myself. David... It's not a big deal to disobey God because he has grace for sinners. Jesus died on the cross so I can get away with it scot-free. Yes, he has grace for sinners. More grace than we can even imagine. It's an infinite grace for sinners who repent. Anyone who is willfully, think about that, knowingly, ongoingly involved in sin as a lifestyle has not repented. And the reason I keep being like a broken record, willfully, ongoingly, lifestyle, is because I'm not just talking about a slip-up. I'm talking about a willful choice, like the uh, Gnostics. He has grace for sinners who don't know that they're sinning. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can anyone show me a verse where Jesus saves the soul of someone who knowingly chooses disobedience as an ongoing way of life? Is there a book of the Bible I haven't read yet? Maybe first progressive Christianity 1-1. Do what thou wilt. Oh wait, that's the satanic Bible, never mind. 1 John 3-9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. There's a lot of hope there. That's not meant as a, as a criticism or a judgment. You cannot when you're in Jesus. It's wonderful. Because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Again, at first glance, this verse might sound like it's asking too much of us, like we're supposed to never sin. This is why it's so important to set the context when you read the Bible. All this sin talk is directed toward a group of heretics who purposefully rejected Jesus as God and embraced sexual immorality ongoingly as a lifestyle. And they still wanted to say they were in the truth or in the faith. So when I say ongoingly, it's because this is not a much-regretted slip-up. As I said, we're talking about a deliberate, willful lifestyle. So without that context, someone might say, well, I can't never sin, so I guess I'm never going to heaven. That's not what it's saying. My friends, he knows we're going to mess up sometimes. In fact, in this very letter, John says, anyone who claims they are without sin is a liar, too. That includes himself. Jesus is the only one who never sinned. Some of us have trouble even going one hour without sinning. I accidentally admitted to a friend that I drive way over the speed limit. And I got a pretty serious talking to. This just happened this week. Bible verses, admonitions, more Bible verses, exhortations, all capped off by a nice, long, helpful email reiterating 
the aforementioned helpful points. I won't mention that there was also a Facebook post. I'm not going to mention that. A wise man loves correction. So, I found myself going three or four miles over in the last week. Just three or four. And my car can't go any slower than that. So, hopefully that's good enough. Last night I was driving home from church and I think I was going 60 in the 55. I never go 60. I can't even go that slow. And somebody passed me and I thought to myself, must be nice. That used to be me. And the Holy Spirit was like, no. Cheerfully. Cheerfully. Not even, you can't even grumble about it. You have to do it cheerfully. Look, if anyone is struggling with, with a besetting sin, that means a sin that's an ongoing struggle, and you ask for forgiveness, and then you mess up, and then you ask for forgiveness again, and you mess up again, and it's been a long, hard road, and you just want to be free of it, I have nothing but compassion for you. My dad has nothing but compassion for you. Jesus has nothing but compassion for you. God came to save sinners just like that. In fact, he didn't come to save the righteous because there are none outside of him. If you're struggling with sin, you should keep hoping and keep fighting the good fight. I'm not saying you're going to hell for that. The point is that you're struggling. The Gnostics were not struggling. They were saying, it's good, it's okay, we get to do this, it's fine. You see the difference? Okay. King David murdered one of his own men. King Saul was supposed to slaughter some sheep that he was told to capture, and he kept them for himself instead. Murder, keeping some sheep. Which is worse? Murder, right? One of them got rejected as king for what they did, and the other one got forgiven. A clean slate. Surely the murderer got rejected, right? No. If you read First and Second Samuel, you know David got forgiven and Saul got rejected. What? How could that be? In fact, David got told he was going to be chosen as the father of the line that would uh, lead to the coming of the Messiah. So he actually got more favor after that. By contrast, sorry to have to tell you this, a little bit graphic, the Bible is sometimes R-rated, Saul died a miserable death, falling on his own sword to avoid being captured by the Philistines and tortured to death. How is that fair? Why did David remain acceptable and even favored while Saul was punished? Anybody ever thought about that? Look, it's this simple. We like simple, right? David repented and Saul didn't. I know it offends our human reason. But the murderer who repents is better off than the greedy person who doesn't. When I was in my young 20s, I worked at Boise Cascade in White City every summer when I came home from college. I thought it was really awesome to be making making like $12 an hour. (laughs) Believe it or not, I was quiet and reserved back then. I don't know what happened to me. I think God ruined that. All I wanted was to keep my head down and just get my work done. I didn't want to make any waves, rock any boats get any attention to myself, but my very first day on the job, in fact, the first five minutes, my new supervisor came up to me, introduced himself, and he had a series of questions for me. I could tell he was going to like permanently judge me for the rest of my time there based on my answer, so I really wanted to impress him. Are you a good worker? Oh yeah, I'm a good worker. Are you reliable? Absolutely. 
Are you a safe worker? Sure, sure. That one didn't pan out. I dropped a two-by-four on someone's head later, but we won't talk about that. His last question. Are you overly religious? Pause. Oh, man. What do I say? Well, I have to... I can't deny Christ. I'm a Christian, and I love Jesus. Oh, boy. Wrong answer. His face fell. And from then on, we were never good. And I became known to all of them as that Christian. Every bad joke. Oh, sorry, David. Keep telling the joke anyway. Every cuss word. Oh, sorry for cussing. Keep on cussing. Stop apologizing. If you're just going to keep on doing it, that doesn't, that's not really an apology. One guy came up to me out of the blue. I had never witnessed to him, never talked about Jesus. I was, like I said, I was reserved. I just, the word got out. This kid is a Christian. He came up to me all agitated. I know what you Christians believe. You believe anyone can go to heaven. That is not fair. I don't want a murderer to go to heaven. I don't want a child molester to go to heaven. It's not fair. What if one person lives a pretty good life, but they're not very religious? And another person is a murderer but becomes a Christian, like the serial killer, Ted Bundy. I don't want Ted Bundy to go to heaven. All I could think to say was, well, honestly, I don't want Ted Bundy to go to heaven either, frankly. But it's not up to me. It's not up to you. Jesus gets to decide that. He wouldn't let it go. He followed me throughout that factory and said, you... You need to answer this. If Ted Bundy really did accept Jesus before he died, like the news said, before they, I think he got the chair, did Ted Bundy go to heaven? If Ted Bundy really did accept Jesus as his savior for reals, he did. It's not fair. I don't want to go to a heaven with Ted Bundy. I'd rather go to hell than go to a, a, a heaven where there's Ted Bundy. He was not the one that I dropped the two-by-four on late because he would have thought I did it on purpose. I did not. Look, in a way, he's right, isn't he? It's not fair. Be careful what you wish for. If everything was fair, we would all go to hell for our sin. You know who was treated with the least fairness of anyone? Who in history experienced the greatest gap between what they deserved and what they got? Absolutely, Jesus. It wasn't fair to Jesus. When David had his sin wiped clean... That wasn't fair to Jesus because part of Christ's pain on the cross was covering David's murder. Someone told me prophetically, they, they, they asked the Lord once, what is it like when I willfully sin? How, did, how does that affect you? And, and they had a vision of Christ on the cross and the thorns, it was like the crown of thorns was being pressed more into his head. But he endured that, even though it wasn't fair, for the joy set before him. What was that joy? Gaining the privilege to give us what none of us deserve. Eternal life. Perfect righteousness. Thank God Jesus was treated so unfairly in a harsh way so we could be treated so unfairly in a gracious way. Be careful when you ask for fairness for somebody else because that can be a double-edged sword. David did not get what he deserved. Death. Because Jesus didn't get what he deserved. Life. Why? David repented. Saul would not repent. So how could Jesus help him? He can only take the punishment of those who repent. He can only take the punishment of those who repent. 1 John 2, 1 gives us a wonderful promise. I love this picture. 
My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Your accuser, your enemy, stands in the courtroom and points directly at you before God the judge and all his angels and shouts, this person sinned. And Jesus, your defender, your advocate, stands before the Father and says, forgive them, Father. Put that too under my blood. And the great judge lowers the gavel and says, case dismissed, not guilty. But he can't do it if he won't repent. But I thought we were saved by faith. We are saved by faith. We are saved by faith. And as you know, a true faith has certain distinguishing characteristics, doesn't it? Certain marks indicate a true faith. What are the sure signs of a living faith? Firstly, a living faith produces good works. We learn from Paul in Ephesians, we're saved by faith, not works. Thank God. I can't swim to Hawaii. I can't make it on my own. But Jesus Christ has given me a first-class ticket on a cruise line. I'm going to Hawaii. That's heaven in this analogy. (laughs) On the other hand, we learn from James that a true faith produces good works as a byproduct. Good works are a distinguishing mark of a saving faith. James 2.20, faith without works is dead. Now, listen, don't go out and do a bunch of good works to try to gin up your faith. It doesn't work that way. That's how you burn out. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6, tells us, the good works of the unbeliever are like filthy rags to God. Think about that. He's so righteous that without him, an unbeliever's, their, their best efforts... Don't come close. Don't even come close. Instead, determine to place your faith in him at whatever cost. At whatever cost. And the good works will come as surely as the dawn. As surely as no one should hire me again to work in a factory because I might drop a board on someone's head, the good works will come if you have faith in him. John's letter here, he tells us 3.18. Dear children... Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. True faith will produce not mere words, but actions as a matter of course. Secondly, true faith produces repentance, as this letter has been telling us again and again. And I hope with all my heart that no one here or watching online is lying to themselves on such an important question. If a person is living in prolonged, willful rebellion, let me ask you this. Do they really have a saving faith? Talking about the Gnostics, but still relevant to us, the Apostle John says, no. Chapter 2, verse 4, that person is lying to themselves, and the truth is not in them. You know, no one knows what's going on inside another person's heart. I certainly don't know what's going on in your heart. Each of us only knows our own heart. So between you and the Lord, please examine your heart in regard to what I'm about to share. There are those, I hope and pray none here, but certainly on this planet, there are those who think they're in Christ. Maybe they've prayed the sinner's prayer. Maybe they have no overt vices. They don't drink. They don't gamble. They don't cuss. No R-rated movies. They aren't sleeping around. They look and sound exactly like a believer. 
but they're holding on to an invisible sin of the heart. I call sins of the heart invisible killers because they're so destructive to our lives, but we can't see them. You know, when someone's doing something really obvious, you can see it, but there's secret hidden sins that you can't see. Of those invisible killers, possibly the most deadly is unforgiveness. It's the only invisible killer of which Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother or sister who wrongs you, the Father in heaven will not forgive you. There are other invisible killers holding on to hatred, holding on to envy. I keep saying holding on because we're not talking about a quick failure and then a repentance. I mean a lifestyle. How many people, I wonder, think that they're saved but are living with an invisible killer? Maybe they go to church every week. Maybe they know the Bible. Maybe they're involved. Maybe they look outwardly exactly like a believer all their life. But when they stand before the throne of God, he tells them, you never put your faith in me. You chose that other thing. We are saved by faith. And a saving faith will lead a true child of God to repent of all wickedness, even the secret sins of the heart. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians. What does that mean? Fear of God, by the way, not fear of man. This is what it means. Whatever you do, don't choose the poison of an invisible killer over the cup of life that Jesus is offering you. Let go of unforgiveness. Let go of hate. Let go of envy. Be free. Do you want to be free? Like a bird escaped from the snare of the fowler. Don't let the sun go down today on any willful wickedness of the heart. In fact, don't leave this room without doing business with God. At the Azusa Street Revival, they had a sign-up, take care of your business with God. And if you won't do it for yourself, do it for Jesus. He paid the highest price with you in mind. With you in mind. The nails protruding from his palms and ankles, the blood dripping down, everyone mocking him. He could barely breathe. Each breath is an agony. It's crucifixion. Each breath is an agony when you're being crucified, they tell us. And he endured that with you in mind. Don't reject him by holding on to a silent killer. I don't know why, while I was preparing this message, reading this book over and over again, thinking about all this, I felt a specific burden for unforgiveness. Uh, You know... Uh, there's a word called apartheid, which was the word they used to describe the racism and the mistreatment of blacks in South Africa through the, um, up to about 1990s when that was going on. It was a long time. And, um, you know, the blacks were treated like, um, kind of like dogs, basically, in their own country by the white settlers. And around 1990, it erupted into practically a civil war. It was like a war zone in South Africa. And there was a Christian revival meeting in the midst of this, basically a war zone, Christians got together, blacks and white, together to worship Jesus, while everyone else around them was in racial hatred and chaos. And they sang a beautiful song called Forgive. This is from 1990. It's from the middle of this war zone. And I'd like to play some of it today. So we need the PC on, and I think you have that. And so if we can play that, I just want us to listen to this for a few minutes, not very long. And do your business with God while you hear this. Remember that these people were talking about forgiveness when, when what they experienced was all sorts of racial violence. The worst things that you can experience. Let's just get with the presence of God right now. Don't let it live. 
put a simple statement up and everyone who is willing it goes like this don't read it yet I just want to share it Father I forgive so and so for what they did to me doesn't mean it's okay that's not what forgiveness means it just means you let it go so if you're willing we're all going to say this when you get to the blank don't say the name out loud especially if it's your spouse and they're sitting next to you (laughs) you laugh but trust me (laughs) okay If you're willing. If you don't have anybody that you need to forgive, that's awesome. But can you please just say it anyway so that we don't let the others feel singled out? Let's all say this if you're willing. Are you ready? Father, I forgive for what they did to me. It doesn't mean it's okay they did that. It just means I let it go. I'm going to end in prayer. For everyone who forgave, Lord, I pray that you'll give them a burst of your Holy Spirit right now. I pray that you'll seal that and don't let it come back. And if they need to keep on working on that, I pray that you'll enable them to do that over coming days and weeks. Just let it go. 
and for all the other things, Jesus. Let us choose you over anything else. We're not going to be like those crazy Gnostics. We're going to be like the first century Christians who are on fire for Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So if we could get some, some music, um, we're, going to have, we're going to be dismissed, but we'll have the, the team come up. If you don't know that Jesus is your Savior, come up and we'll, we'll, we would love to be able to pray with you to receive Jesus in your heart so you can know for sure you have that eternal life. And if you uh, want prayer for anything else, a breakthrough in your life, please come forward and we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, we'll be dismissed. Have a blessed week. Thank you, everybody.